Hello, and welcome back to the Handmade Network podcast. Today, I'm joined again by Dimitri Spanos, an artificial intelligence expert and well-known community member. Dimitri, having received his PhD at Caltech and working as a university educator, was definitely my first choice to have on this episode, because today we're going to be discussing universities and more broadly education. Education is close to the network. The network was partially born out of criticism towards the software engineering industry, and so universities are often discussed and often criticized in the community because so many modern software engineers start there. I'm hoping to talk to Dimitri today about this. What is going on at universities? Why does the network tend to criticize them? Are they doing a good job? Are they doing a bad job? How big of a problem are we talking about here? And so on. With that being said, welcome back to the podcast, Dimitri. Good to be back. Uh, Thanks for having me. And uh, I think, uh, indeed, I am uh, excited to discuss the subject because, as you know, this is something that is very near to my interests and certainly overlaps with how I view the kind of handmade community as well. I'm happy to be here. Great. So to get started, how about we just jump in uh, with a very brief background of your personal experience? What drove you to teach in the first place? I mean, I know that for a lot of people, teaching is part of getting a PhD to an extent. How about you tell me about sure. that a little bit? So it's not any one thing. There's a cloud of many things that, that contribute. So uh, first of all, I come from a long line of educators. My father is a university professor. Both of his parents were teachers. Two of his, I guess, a brother and a cousin are university professors. It, this has been part of the air I breathe since I was a child. I always had some interest in teaching. So I, I did things in in high school and college, tutoring people, or I volunteered at a events like middle school robotics fairs and that kind of thing. Okay, It's a combination of many different things. To specifically respond to your point, it was indeed mandatory as part of my PhD training to be a teaching assistant. So I did that. And afterward, I was a visiting professor at the University of Southern California for two years, uh, where I taught advanced undergraduate and graduate level courses in applied mathematics for engineers. Beyond that, I tried to be active in communities like HMN, just helping people out with, you know, hey, I'm trying to solve this graphics problem, and that leads to a linear algebra question. Can with this linear algebra question, right? right? I, I would say that it's something that is both deeply woven into my personal history and just something that I value highly, and that I think, in many cases, like to do it. So, having seen the discussions of universities on Handmade Network, obviously, many people, including myself, talk with a criticizing nature towards universities. I want to dig into how your view of being an educator when you were one at a university, how that compares to sort of the other side. Because I just went through my program, undergraduate in computer science, that I didn't go to Carnegie Mellon or Harvard or anything or Stanford, but went to a state school. I'm curious about what you think about what the criticisms directed towards universities. I'm curious how you see those comparing with your own experiences. And I want to know if before Handmade Network ever became a thing, did you have many of the same feelings towards your experience at universities or did it feel different? Were you happy about them? I just want to know a little bit more how, how I guess, my experience and your experience differ there or if they share some, some common ground. Okay. From my perspective, I was in university to learn things that are not, roughly speaking, software engineering and programming, right? So I was taking basically okay. advanced math yeah. and science courses, and that was my entire curriculum. So these are things that are difficult to get anywhere else. So 
you know, I would take a course on whatever advanced partial differential equations, right? Uh, and that would have a programming component, but it was not a course about programming. We'd write programs to explore mathematical questions or scientific questions. So I, I was in this program, computational and applied mathematics. It was kind of a fusion of a math department and a CS department focused on analyzing scientific and engineering problems with mathematics and computing. So that was the kind of thing I was doing. That gets to the first thing that I noticed there, which is you were using programming as a tool already, whereas in, in my degree, many of the classes were sort of thinking about programming as the thing you were learning about without like a particular goal in mind. If I understand correctly, you did, was it computer science or software engineering? Yeah, it was computer science. Most computer science professors, I would say, don't care very much about programming and they don't really conceive of themselves as programmers. I think social and market forces have sold the idea to young people that by going to a university for computer science, they can then get a job as a programmer. And it's a little bit like telling people, right. if you go to university to study astronomy, you can then get a job as a telescope technician. They're not waking up in the morning thinking, how am I going to write the nicest class factorization of some problem, right? They're thinking <laughs> about things like, uh, so I, I worked closely during my PhD with computer scientists, even though I was not in the computer science department. Mm -hmm. I worked closely with computer scientists and they, you know, they would worry about things like, what kinds of tools would allow, allow us to prove that certain kinds of distributed programs halt? Okay, so in computer science, there's the same as halting problem, right? That's the level of analysis that a typical computer science professor works at, okay? So you can imagine now that that kind of a person who is then asked also to bear the load of teaching a 20-year-old how to write Java well enough to get an enterprise programming job, many of them resent that. They don't actually want to be doing that. And they would right. much rather be doing something else. But universities, as these complex social and economic and intellectual institutions, they serve many, many functions, right? And one of the functions that we expect universities right now to, to carry out is that they are supposed to turn young people who want to become programmers into programmers by shoving them through a computer science department. And really, computer science right. professors don't think of computer science departments as places to learn about programming. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think my personal experiences match that very well, I would think. Do you have an idea of why universities started doing that? Was it economic incentives or something else? It's a complicated subject, and it is a, uh, I don't know if I've, I've used this analogy before, uh, that's what I call an elephant problem. So it's, okay. there's this, this parable about like five blind people trying to study an elephant, right? And the one person is in front of the <laughs> elephant, and they grab the elephant's trunk and they say, oh, well, this is obviously some kind of a snake, right? And there's another one and it grabs the elephant's leg and says, oh, well, no, this is obviously a tree trunk, right? You can't see the whole elephant at once. You can only grab pieces of it. Yeah. When, you're, when you're in that kind of situation, you're left with everyone just grabs whatever's close to them and then applies some kind of metaphor to it and says, oh, okay, this looks like a snake. This looks like a tree. Dealing with the expectations that people have for universities over the last, let's say, 50 years is uh, definitely an elephant problem. So I can give you the bits that I can grab onto. One pressure is that universities and departments always feel pressure from funding agencies and donors to do what is perceived to be as the next big thing, right? Imagine oh, you're in the 60s and 70s, and you have the establishment of companies like, well, IBM is much older, but you have companies like uh, Intel, you have the kind of the foundation of Silicon Valley, all of this, the roots of the Silicon Valley and uh, for lack of a better term, the kind of information age foundations. And you have people from 
you know, federal funding sources and alumni saying, hey, there's all this stuff going on. You should invent a degree program that studies just that, right? And in fact, that is how computer science departments were born. Prior to the 60s, there was no such thing as a computer science department. It was a mathematics department. And maybe sometimes it was like computing was done in physics. So that, that, that was the yeah. first iteration of that, right? The mere existence of computer science departments was kind of round one of social desires and expectations pushing universities toward having, toward restructuring educational programs. Then later on, it became clear that programming would become a good, stable, middle class, upper middle class profession. There was lots right. of demand, uh, both from employers, but also from people with who could think about things like socioeconomic policy to get more and more people into this, right? Because it's a, in the, especially in the, in the eighties, there was this big trend of, of worrying about, you know, all of the, the manufacturing power is going to go at the time. Everybody was worried about Japan. Now we're worried about China, right? We're worried about, worried about a different thing, but the, the trend goes back many decades. At the time, everyone was concerned that Japan was going to be building all the electronics and all of the, you know, the fancy gadgets, right? And what was America going to do? The part, you know, okay. programming slotted into that saying, okay, well, we're going to teach Americans to program. Right. They're going to be on top of software. You know, it's a growing field. We have a good foundation for it. It'll be a solid upper middle class income. Uh, it will help people with, you know, socioeconomic mobility. There was pressure to expand both the number and the size of computer science departments. There was then kind of in the, in the nineties, there was the first wave of serious resistance from employers to what academic computer science programs were doing. So they, they, for example, okay. Hey, you sent me all these really smart people, but the only thing they know how to do is write recursive set parsers in Lisp. And that's not <laughs> going to solve my accounting problem, right? I have an accounting problem. You send me mm-hmm. someone who can solve an accounting problem, right? And so yeah. that kind of pressure, that kind of pressure led toward the foundation in some places of dedicated programs in software engineering, or sometimes a computer science department would have a software engineering you know, focus or concentration. The, the words always change, but they're basically the same thing. Yeah. So that was something that happened very broadly in the 90s. And that coincided with the rise of Java and the nearly complete intellectual dominance. Maybe I, I don't want to use the word intellectual. The complete <laughs> social dominance of Java and C++ style object-oriented programming. Um, you know, I, I remember yeah. very clearly having conversations with people in 98 or 99, and we would be talking about solving some problem. In the conversation, I'd say something like, well, here we could, we could maybe use C++ because there's some potential positive use for object-oriented programming. And then people would, would give me crazy looks like, what do you mean there might be a positive, uh, a positive use for object-oriented <laughs> programming, Dimitri? Uh, you know, what kind of caveman are you? Object-oriented programming <laughs> is the future. It's the only future. I can't believe we're, <laughs> we're having this kind of conversation. And, and I'm, I'm really not exaggerating that people I was extremely stubborn for thinking that maybe object-oriented programming should earn its status rather than be granted its status. Right. (laughs) It's hard for people nowadays to understand how widely Java was marketed at the time. It's a little bit difficult to compare because now marketing, you know, marketing of tech stuff is just everywhere. Whereas at the time, it was rare. In the early 90s, it was rare to see an advertisement for a video game. (laughs) Never mind an advertisement for, for a programming language. And Sun just dumped a ton mm-hmm. of money into pushing Java everywhere. You know, Java conferences, Java uh, newsletters. Java, you know. I, I'm not specifically taking a position on whether what Sun did was smart or not, or good for the 
the broader ecosystem or not. The point I'm trying to make here is that as there was this establishment of software engineering programs in universities, there was also at the same time this huge push toward Java and C++ style OOP and the big Java marketing push so that by the end of the 90s, it was more or less a done deal that if you were going to do sort of line of business kind of programming, it was going to be Java or C++. Obviously, it was going to be object-oriented. You'd probably use some kind of you know, object management framework. So to bring this back to the universities, they were getting the pressure from employers and funding sources to help students be ready for that. Uh, that's a recurring theme that you get as a professor, which is someone you don't know <laughs> calls up your dean or the uh, president of the university and says, we need your students to be ready for programming in, I don't know, Node.js, right? And then suddenly it's your problem, right? Because those people, I mean, it's, the dean is not going to teach anyone to program in Node.js. So the dean calls up the computer science professors and says, hey, there's this Node.js thing. People are really excited about it. I need you to make sure that our students can tick the box ready to program in Node.js. So you can imagine yeah. if, you, if, if you see yourself as an intellectual, someone trying to answer scientific questions about distributed versions of the halting problem, and then someone sends you an email saying, by the way, we need to tick the Node.js box. You can imagine the kinds of feelings that this person has, right? <laughs> yeah. Let's just slap together curriculum, probably pull it from other sources and, and call it good and get back to the research yes. that we care about. So and this is something where I think that our experiences being kind of on, on mirrored sides of this relationship could lead to some productive insight for the audience which is, I don't mean to suggest that universities are doing a good job in programming education now. But what I would like to, to try to do is to help give an understanding of the personal and institutional incentives that have made things this way and that likely will keep things this way for a while so that people right. can have a realistic understanding of what they can and cannot get from a university and why it is the way it is. And, and then hopefully, yeah. uh, I hope we can also explore how to go beyond that and try to do more than that. I don't know if it's if it is uh, uh, presumptuous to call Handmade Network an institution, but in any case, communities like Handmade Network, I think, are doing mm -hmm. are doing important work that is very difficult for universities to do. Uh, and I, I've seen it personally that you know, in the however long I've been involved here, five or six years, you know, I've seen many people go from knowing nothing to getting good, solid jobs where they're happy and you know make good money and are upwardly mobile. So I I didn't go to university when the Java C stuff was going on, although I definitely remember. Growing up while programming, there was a ton of Java and C++ resources that were just all around. And I've known older people who sort of went through computer science programs, and uh, their experiences seem reflective of that. And my experience is similar, not in the sense that I use Java or C++, although I did do C++. It's similar in that there seems to be a mix of topics that feel like mathematics, sort of the, I had a few classes that would function. Uh, focus on things like functional programming, for example. And it was very theoretical, but it was very mathematically rigorous, it felt like. Like, it didn't feel arbitrary or driven by yep. arbitrary institutional incentives or anything, uh, or I incentives coming from elsewhere. It felt like it was just like, here are the mathematical axioms we're going to go with, and here's how we how we explore that space. And that was one half of it. And then the other half is the modern day equivalent, I would say, of Java and C++, which is effectively the right. web stuff. I mean, you brought up Node.js. I don't know if that's going to stick around for forever, but it's. I'm sure it'll be replaced by something else if if not. But that was sort of my experience. So that's interesting to hear. You sort of, you drew a big circle around all the different pieces that I had in my head 
that comprised my university experience and sort of traced a path through them, which was really interesting. Yeah, let me, there is actually perhaps an institutional incentive that you cannot perceive about the functional program, which is that okay. uh, it is much higher status in computer science, computer science academia, to be able to formally prove something about your language or your algorithm or whatever. But we have much better tools for performing formal proof analysis on functional programs than we do for anything else. And so part of it is just that it, it indeed is a better fit for the mentality of someone who's like a programming language research or researcher, but also you work right. in a functional language. Let's say you want your language to have automatic memoization and caching, right? You want to be able to just mark a, mark a function right. and say, I want this one to be optimized with memoization and caching. And then that, that raises some questions about, okay, what's the language runtime going to do to make intelligent decisions about what should be kept in memory, what should be recomputed, how often should it be evicted, that kind of stuff, right? So your goal is to do something about a language runtime with memoization and caching, okay? The easiest way to do that in a way that gets you respect in computer science academia is to do that in a functional language, because it's easier to turn that into formal proofs that go into a paper that then goes to a conference that then goes to a journal than if you have a more complicated imperative program that has less convenient proof techniques. Okay, that makes perfect sense. It may be the case that as a programming language researcher, you would choose to do a project in a functional language for the ease of doing proofs, even though the specific idea you're chasing around is not an idea that really has anything to do with functional programming. I see. So there's actually institutional yes. incentives there to, to do that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the other high-level point I was going to make, you you brought up why this would be important for people within the network to understand. It sort of goes to the heart of every other problem that, or every other piece of advice that we give to people when they're trying to solve problems. If somebody is interested in solving the problem, the, the perceived problems that we have with education, then, you know, step one is to understand those problems. And I think understanding the the various incentives that come into play and you know, where people are getting their funding, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to present at conferences versus instructing students and preparing them for, for being competent engineers or whatever? Something that should be made explicit is that there is approximately zero reward to an ambitious computer science professor for helping students be good programmers. There's just no mm. path to getting anything that helps you get tenure or help you get a raise. Academia is a very prestige-oriented profession, right? That it's they're not doing it for the money. If they were doing it for the money, they would do different things, right? They want a title, <laughs> they want their papers to be recognized at conferences, they want to get some kind of award for distinguished researcher. And none of the none of the for, for lack of a better term, none of the reward currencies in academia have a path to reward you for helping your students be good programmers. Yeah. And so you sense. can just metaphorically follow the money, right? And again, right. <laughs> these people are not doing it for the money, but you can you can follow <laughs> the reward circuits and see why things are the way they are. One thing that I noticed going through school was if you were not explicitly interested in the, the sort of processes that you're speaking about, presenting research, you know, getting your master's or PhD in computer science and trying to publish a paper, um, that style of work. If you're not interested in that, it seems that the universities don't necessarily care about the portion of students that don't care to do to to follow that path. Conversely, the students don't really care about the the university and what it's doing on the other side. So it seems if you took all the time that I spent 
in a class and found the proportion of time where I was feeling like I was going through the motions or felt like, you know, the teacher didn't care or something like that compared to the time when I didn't feel that way. Math was like sort of the best subject in that sense. But even in math classes, and specifically the ones that were tied to computer science, I really felt like I was going through the motions. Um, It felt, I don't know, instead of actually understanding the mathematics, which I I would say is genuinely helpful with uh, actually doing programming work. I mean, as you said, I mean, you, you help people on a graphics problem using linear algebra. And obviously, I mean, there's countless places where math sort of seeps into problems like that. Yeah, I felt like instead of actually understanding the mathematics and bettering myself as somebody who, you know, would hopefully understand mathematics and be able to apply it and use it. It really felt like more I was learning how to manipulate symbols on a page or the best phrase I can think of is going through the motions, basically. So I think I think that explains that to a large degree. It's just many students are going into school with the expectation that they're going to learn how to be programmers and the universities are not particularly interested in that. So there's like disinterest on both sides, it seems. Yes. And I would also say that the idea that universities are primarily in the business of helping students become better at anything in particular is a somewhat new (laughs) concept, right? Over the, I would say like maybe it goes back 70 years, 80 years, something like that. Um, The precursor version, the, the view of the purpose of the university was to be the repository of advanced knowledge. Right. And the, the professors were living, breathing repositories of knowledge. And when society needed that specialized knowledge, they knew that that specialized knowledge lived in the books in the university libraries and the brains in the university professors. Right. And the students, the right. students were ways of keeping that machinery going, disseminating some of that knowledge so that it also lived out in the world and also generating the next generation of scholars and researchers. But it was, uh, it was an institution whose primary purpose was knowledge, right? Protecting it, advancing it, organizing it, uh, refining it, right? And students were part of that machinery, but it was not primarily an institution about helping students be better at some subject. I mean, we should keep in mind universities, their, their origins are in, in the church, right? And, you know, it was originally to pass down and organize uh, religious knowledge. And I, I think that it's, it's useful to keep in mind this more modern view of seeing universities as human capital factories rather than being knowledge repositories, right? I, I actually didn't mean that to be pejorative. Like, I, I think the idea of a human capital factory is great, right? I think if we just set universities aside for a moment, I think it would be great for society to have institutions that specialize in taking people who are young and have lots of potential and help those people reach their potential the best possible way they can, right? I think that's, that's a great right. thing. We should have that. We should have as much of that as we can possibly get, right? But that's not historically what universities have been. Universities serve 15 different masters, right? And that part of what's, what makes it an elephant problem is that they face incentives from so many different sources and they have people involved for so many different motivations. Most professors are some version of, if you'll allow me to borrow the analogy, true believers, right? And, you know, certainly I, I, I was in the <laughs> sense that, I mean, I, I genuinely wanted to to play my small part in advancing knowledge and helping that knowledge get out to people who might benefit from that knowledge. And I still try to do that. I, you know, I think that that's a, yeah. a virtuous, useful thing to do. And I, I would say that most university professors are some flavor of that true believer, but they are usually at various stages of being jaded with what they, the hoops they have to jump through so that they can keep doing that. I, I, again, I would think that most 
professors, if you got them at a after hours with a with a beer or a glass of wine, they would say, "Yeah, you know, I love whatever chemistry, but boy, do I hate spending sixty percent of my time chasing money from the federal government." Anyway, uh, let me let me close that off because that's something where I think we could easily easily spend an hour talking just about that. The concept that we currently have that's kind of diffused in society at large now is you go to college to become good at something so you can have a job and a successful life. That's a recent understanding of universities and is not really a great match for the people that populate university departments. Like they're, they're not there with the idea that the main thing they want to do is help students advance. They, they definitely see that as part of what they do, but that's not, in most competitive schools, that's not the only thing they do or even the primary thing they do. Yeah, that makes sense. I've thought for a while that the primary problem that I seem to have when it comes to universities has less to do with what they're doing in itself and more to do with the cultural perception of universities. And I don't know exactly why this is. I mean, I there's probably a pretty good economic explanation. Like if you look at massive companies that are wanting lots of programmers who they don't need them to be rock star programmers who know exactly what they're doing. They need somebody who can continue to keep the cash flowing into the company. From a risk management perspective, they Mm -hmm. rationally would prefer people not to be rock stars. Because if I put on my business management hat for a moment, right? And you tell me, hey, look, we have this project that we're going to do for your business. And we can set it up one of two ways. We can set it up so that it takes five people who program in blub programming language. It takes five blub programmers, but the good thing is that basically all blub programmers are roughly competent at writing blub, and you know no one has ever heard of a really great blub program, but they all basically work. That's the one <laughs> setup. And the other is, we're going to make it where it only takes one person, and this person is a poet, right? I mean, this person, you know, they walk into the office and their eyes light up the room. They just blast you with inspiration for how this system is going to solve all your problems. As a business yeah. manager, you should run away screaming from the poet because <laughs> that that is idiosyncratic business risk. What if the poet decides they don't like working for you anymore? Or you know, what if the poet decides that they got a better offer somewhere else? Now, where do you go and find a new poet, right? Whereas if you can, right. if your setup is, I have these five blood programmers and there's a giant market of blood, blood programmers, right? And you know, maybe they're not that cheap, but there's always a steady supply of them and the quality is within some understandable bounds. Uh, and so businesses are, from a risk management perspective, most of them anyway, are probably incentivized to prefer building around blub-style development practices than around poet-style development practices. Yeah, that makes sense. It's such a stark difference from the things that many people within the network primarily care about. I mean, myself included. I, I've always wanted to see sort of bigger and better technological things, but with the risk reward analysis there, it's much higher risk to do bigger and better things because 90% of the things you do will fit or probably higher percent than that will fail. And the reward might be high, but the risk is is super high and, and businesses probably aren't optimizing for super high risk, super high reward strategies. Well, they, they might be, um, but only when that's mission critical, right? So let's say yeah. you are a finance company. You might have some idea mm-hmm. about this great exotic finance strategy, right? And you know, you talk it over with with everyone, they say, okay, this is kind of a risky strategy, but it could be great if it works, right? That's that's yeah. the kind of exotic idiosyncratic risk that someone might take rationally from a business perspective. Now if someone comes to you, you're the fi- you're still the finance company. If someone comes to you and says, by the way, I want 
to ship this strategy on this exotic new computer architecture. Well, you should just boot that person out of the room because there's no, the computer architecture is not going to make a difference to the success of your business. So why would you add anything unusual or risky, anything that's not a commodity? Why would you use a non-commodity component when you, you're not making any special use of that? that element in your business, right? If the computers are just letting the finance people do finance stuff, no one cares what what the architecture is. So just use whatever architecture is the least likely to be noticed. It's not necessarily true. It's often true that businesses don't don't want to do anything with kind of exotic risk at all. But there are definitely businesses that take moderate to substantial risks on things that are new. But they do that in a way where the risks are are intrinsic to the business. They're not going to go invest in something exotic for something that has that could easily be a commodity. I see. Back in mm-hmm. this was ballpark around 2010, 2005, 2010, somewhere somewhere around there. I don't remember the details that well. There was this uh, okay. company called ITA or ITA Matrix, or maybe ITA Matrix was a product sold by ITA. Anyway, it was a search engine for flight bookings that could accept very complex constraints. So for example, you go to it and say, I am currently in Los Angeles and I want to end up in New York, but I need to make these four stops. Between those four stops, I need to spend at least two days at each and I don't want to pay more than X amount. You can imagine, right? Just keep adding adding stuff to the list, right? right. Um, then that creates a very complicated search query that goes to talk to APIs provided by airlines. And anyway, the, the airline business is extremely complicated. And there are all sorts of funny constraints on their side. Like if you buy this ticket, then you're not allowed to buy that ticket, or you're not allowed to use this ticket as a return leg on that ticket, even though even though they line up geographically. Very complicated, very complicated overlapping constraints that on the searcher side, but also on the data supplier side, right? And the typical market leaders there were doing, you know, what, what you might call, you know, conventional programming with C++, Java, whatever. And this company, ITA, made a name for themselves because they built theirs on mostly Lisp, and that allowed them. Huh. Okay, I, I don't remember the details. That you can find the you can find the backstory of ITA online, but that allowed them to do certain kinds of computations on the fly in a way that you know, with with ahead of time compilers with you know C++ and Java, uh, their competitors were unable to do. And so there, they were doing something that was indeed exotic. Uh, very, very few people were were shipping you know production software, especially at that scale, on common Lisp. But they were doing something exotic there in a way that was essential to the business, right? That by, by doing something exotic, it let them do something fundamentally different uh, for the business. Hmm. Okay. So I'm uh, just in that specific case. I'm I'm curious how that how that company did. Is well, that they were quite is that like a they were quite successful. They were acquired by Google in 2011 or something. Oh wow. Okay. So yes, Google's flight, as far as I yeah. know, all of Google's flight results are powered by ITA technology, or at least they were five years ago. I don't know what's going on. Like, with Google, you never know. But right? there's lots right. of churn at Google. But at least at least quite recently, flight info at Google was coming from ITA stuff. Interesting. From what I can tell, there seems to be a, a balancing act, I guess, between two different sides of some sort of continuum. One side would be the, you know, the institutional maintain the business sort of status quo, keep Doing the rational decision from a from a market and economic and business perspective, as you were talking about, where you aren't going to do the next big risky exotic thing, unless of course you acquire it or something. In in the case of Google, but and then there's the, I guess the flip side to that is that in order to make any progress technologically in general, there has to be some people doing the higher risk things, and then I would assume that 
the pattern is probably that once people have succeeded in the market with those more risky strategies, then the big institutions that are doing the smart business thing, their strategy has to change to adapt to the market in that case, because new technology has been introduced. Do you uh, agree? I, I agree. But to tie it back to the, the, the subject of of teaching and education, right? how much do you want to optimize your education program for those kinds of possibilities versus the meat and potatoes possibilities? Right. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, it, I, I think uh, it's probably a small fraction of people that you actually want doing the, the risky work in general, which is probably why it works out the yeah, way it Yeah, and it's also a small fraction of people who have the, the inclination to do it as well. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So do you see the role of I'll, I'll use the word uh, that you used with Handmade Network, the role of alternative institutions, let's say, or communities or less formal gatherings, I guess. Do you see them as prepping that uh, minority of the population to do that style of work? Or, and if that is how you see the role of those, of those communities and, and groups of people, do you see a path for them to improve? Or do you think it's fine the way it is or something else? Let's maybe try to make the comparison with the baseline a little bit more explicit. So if, if we're looking at the, the, okay. the current kind of default university pipeline for generating programmers, right? Uh, maybe, maybe we maybe be useful to just kind yeah. of lay out, you know, three, four, five criticisms that are, that are occupying us. Uh, and then from there, we can kind of think about, okay, what, like, if this is the, the menu of criticisms, what does a thing like Handmade Network, or for that matter, something like Handmade Hero, how a thing like that right. address one or more of those criticisms, and then we can talk about how other other kinds of organizations could could address the rest. So we do need people who are good programmers, but there is really nothing in the incentive structure of universities that rewards them for producing good programmers. I see. I would I would say that I'm a person who has an inclination to want to work on sort of higher quality and more interesting tech over time, and I would say that the Comparing to Handmade Hero, for example, maybe this is putting the cart before the horse a little bit, but it eventually results in a criticism, I, I suppose, of my education is that, well, A, I, I guess it's what you said before, that the university education I perceived as necessary, and it was it was presented to me in high school and earlier as being necessary to be successful. And the second part of it is that uh, the ratio of time spent to how much I grew as a programmer, uh, let, me, let me think about the ratio I just said. Time to progress, I guess. Yeah, so it was much smaller ratio when I followed Handmade Hero, for example, versus university. I, I mean, I just finished after you know five years or so. I, I had a few uh, semesters that I took off for internships and stuff. So more four years of, yeah. of continuous education. The, the ratio was much higher at the university. And I think it seems that there was a lack of a place for me to go to, I mean, number one, grow and develop as a programmer and learn to work on better things and be also be prepared to to work somewhere and and you know be able to sustain myself while I'm trying to pursue those more let's say ambitious goals. Yeah, let me have make two responses to this and then we can continue with with more criticisms before we kind of pull things together. Okay. I think that there is a general problem with the implicit promise made to young people about what they're going to get out of university, never mind programming, just very generally, this the yeah. implicit bundle of promises made to young people about what they're going to get out of university is so misleading at this point as to be I mean, I, I think that it, it borders on on unethical not to not to explicitly tell students as they're 
applying or coming in, hey, you may have ABC expectation, but that's not what this is, right? We're doing other right. things, right? Yeah. And as long as you want to do the other thing, you're welcome, but we just need you to know we're doing this other thing, right? Um, that, that's, right. <laughs> that applies to all students. That's not something specific to programming. Something that is yeah. specific to programming is that I personally think that programming has been a victim of the overvaluing of uh, what I'll call the kind of mid-1900s concept of liberal education. And, and wh what I mean by that is the idea that, oh, well, you'll learn a little bit about everything, and you'll learn some stuff in, in one subject, and then some stuff in a related subject, some stuff in a less related subject, and in that mixture of ideas of, you know, let's say uh, someone might study, you know, some literature and some sociology and some history and some whatever, right? That mixture of... Yeah educational components will form a blend that gives you something that's a, a powerful way to view the world and engage with it, right? That, that's kind of the sort of the, the summary version of how people view liberal arts education. That is not how we educate a certain very important group of people, which is musicians. Music school is not oh. like that, right? By comparison to liberal arts programs, hmm. music schools are much more specialized. And I think that programming is uh, so let me let me try to be careful about which words I use here. I am not saying computer science. I'm specifically saying program. I think programming yeah. is probably much better taught closer to the music school model than to the liberal arts college model. I don't mean we should literally pick up music school and turn it into programming school, but I think something more like music school is probably a better fit for programming. Huh. Okay. That's super fascinating. Maybe if I was a, you know, top of the line state of the art musician, I'd have different opinions, but there's no shortage of good musicians, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so the market's extremely saturated with them. <laughs> Analogies between programming and other disciplines are generally not that informative. It's not really like science. It's not really like mathematics. It's not really like writing. It is a little bit like music composition and a little bit like music performance. Separate from the problem that all students face at universities these days, I think programming is suffering from an over-reliance on the mid-1900s concept of the benefits of a liberal arts education. I see. Yeah, makes sense. Something else that I thought about while comparing, for example, the, the lessons that I've learned going through my own personal projects or you know, working at actual places trying to do things, or a Handmade Hero, for example, one important difference that I've noticed between those experiences and my university experiences the best way I've found to describe this is something I've called before like breadth-first education versus depth-first education. The breadth-first aspect is sort of what I feel like I'm doing when I work on personal projects. If I'm writing like a 2D game, for example, and I have to complete that project and you know turn it in, I did lots of those games for uh, competitions in high school, or I have to send it to my friends or something like that, and it has to be like a working finished thing. I might not write, you know, state of the art rendering rendering code and I might not write like the best possible asset pipeline or whatever, but I have to sort of scrape the top of all yeah. those systems and uh, use all of their constraints and tie them all together in a way that works. And I feel like there was a very distinct lack of that in my university education. It felt like classes were like this is the class where you learn this subject and then you can take the information that you've used from your depth first exploration of the subject and then apply it somewhere else. And I've never felt like that was a very helpful way for me to actually apply information because usually there's a character to how different subjects 
intermix and intertwine with each other and their constraints overlap in various ways. And sometimes you solve two problems from different fields in the same way or with the same sort of piece of software or something. Two things I want to say about that are the first is the distinction between analysis and synthesis. And the second is constraints that follow from being universities being a society of experts. Okay, so starting with the first one, universities have been, for many reasons, and many reasons that I don't know, much better at analysis, which is looking at something, understanding its components, breaking it apart, uh, figuring out, for example, if I'm looking, if I'm studying architecture, I look at a building, I can say, okay, I can think about this building, I can break it apart and think about, okay, what are the structural elements that are hiding behind the, behind what I see? What is the facade of the building and what is that design trying to communicate? Uh, what are the human life affordances of the design? Is this something that's meant to be a casual living space? Is this something that's meant to be uh, an industrial workshop? So analysis is looking at something that is a whole and breaking it down into parts and trying to understand what the parts do. I Synthesis yeah. is starting from a bunch of different parts and putting them together into a whole that meets some kind of a goal. So in Hmm. computer science, the analysis disciplines are things like understanding programming languages and type checking and, you know, performance analysis and big O notation. All of those things are analysis. And then synthesis is write a program that solves some problem. In literature, analysis is things like, okay, let's try to understand the word choice. Let's try to understand the themes in a novel. Let's try to understand how the characters embody certain themes. Let's try to, you know, all of that is analysis, right? You take the existing work and then you break it down and try to understand pieces of it and how those pieces interrelate. And then synthesis is go out and write a novel. Uh, And now let me, uh, let me ask you, how many university students do you know who in the course of their university education write a good novel? Basically zero, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right. Yep. Which is not true for music schools. And I, I, you know, I, I don't mean to beat this horse to death, but there are actually students at music schools who produce good music. And many of them go on like directly out of music school to very successful careers, uh, both in kind of highbrow music and in, in pop music that we've all heard of. So well, the one is this analysis versus synthesis divide. I think universities for various reasons are much better, like a factor of 10 better at, at analysis tasks versus synthesis tasks. And this brings me to the second point, which is one reason for that is because universities are structured as societies of experts. So you have in your computer science faculty, the way that people think about it is, oh, Bob is the programming languages person, right? And Betty is the graphics person. And then Charles is the networking person. To clarify, this isn't parallel to how this works at any team, right? You might say, oh, Dimitri, you're being foolish. Any team has division of responsibility, right? That's not what I'm talking about. The programming languages expert at a university has spent so much time focusing on programming languages and in comparison, basically no time looking at that. The lopsidedness of the skill distribution is enormous, right? This is, you know, someone who's spent literally 30 years of a career thinking every single day about how to advance the state of the art in programming languages theory, right? And then similarly, someone for for networking and then similarly someone for cryptography. Um, and so the, the way that university departments are structured is that they are societies of experts. And then it's really very hard to, f- to hire someone who is really good at everything. The yeah. way you get the slot is by saying, I'm not just really good, right? I'm so good that I'm 10 times better than, than the next best person you're going to find. I'm, I'm a super duper expert in this one particular area of programming language theory. 
Yeah. If you are so, if if you will allow me the uh, conceit of kind of assigning numerical scores to to people's skills, right? Mm-hmm. The universities are very good at hiring someone who you know, let's say the scale is is out of twenty, someone who has like a twenty in programming languages and then like a five in everything else, right? Uh, and let let's say that a typical run of the mill programmer has kind of like a six in everything. Okay. So the university. Okay is optimized to find the person who has like that 20 in the programming languages stat and then like fives everywhere else or even less maybe and if you're someone who's like yeah. a 15 across the board there's almost no place for you at a university because they're going to look at you and say well mm. you're not as good as the programming languages person at programming languages and you're not as good at cryptography as a cryptography person and you're not as good as the networking person at networking so you might have as a portfolio of skills you might blow them out of the water right like across 10 skills, you might have 15s and everything, but you can't compete for a university position with someone who has a 20 in one slot and a five everywhere else. Right. And so this ties into the difficulty with doing anything that has to do with synthesis, because synthesis necessarily needs you to be good at at least two things, right? Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to have a quick aside when it comes to, I mean, object-oriented programming, for example. The, one of the problems that I've noticed with it before is that it's as if you're trying to prepare like a very well de- well-developed piece of code in one specific area doing like a set of specific tasks without knowing the constraints of anybody else who's ever going to use your code ever. And you're just trying to make it work regardless of having any communication or lack thereof with the people who are who who your code is interacting with. So obviously that leads to crufts in, in practice and APIs that don't work for certain people and all that kind of thing. What, what I've noticed as, you know, as I've kind of gotten older, working with more people I'm not that old. I, I, I don't want to hear myself saying that. <laughs> but but uh, as I've noticed, working on more projects um, with more people, because you know, growing up, I was more of like a you know lone wolf style kind of programmer. Especially recently, I've been working with you know others, and when you work at a job, obviously you have to work with others. And I've noticed that it's crucially important to understand not the full thing that the person you're working with is doing, but you have to have some pretty okay, rough approximation to their constraints, what they're dealing with, what they're trying to do, um, so that you can fit your work sort of into that piece and so you can so you can communicate effectively with them. So, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, it sounds like these people probably don't even have a incent- incentive to communicate about the fields at all inside of the university structure. Yeah, I can give you an example. So I was taking a class, graduate level class, in a, a foundational applied mathematics subject. And, uh, you know, uh, this is a, a good school that has good professors, right? You expect a, some minimum minimum level of quality there. And right. the instructor was saying, "Oh, and here here is this algorithm for uh, for calculating such and such thing." This you know, there was something that, that was used useful in a certain kind of scientific analysis. And then I asked, "Okay, that okay. seems like an interesting algorithm. What's the time complexity of the algorithm?" And the lecturer just had no idea uh, and said, "Oh, well, you'd have to go ask someone, you know, a complexity researcher about that." And I, you know, I, I was dumbfounded, right? Because I felt like, okay, you're <laughs> at a world-class university. You're telling me about this algorithm that's used to process data uh, for some important uh, scientific analysis. It's it's not like this is a side thing for you. Like this is your main thing, right? Like you are, you are the person who performs <laughs> this analysis. So it's not it's not like I caught them on an off day about something that was tangential. You know, this this was a yeah. person that was specifically about studying this thing with this algorithm. And I asked, <laughs> so you know, what's the time complexity? And just you know, crickets, right? And it, obviously, that that lack of knowledge was not. It turned out it was not a bottleneck on that person's career. But it's really weird 
that you can be so siloed in your knowledge that you can't, can't even answer a basic question about how much it costs to run this algorithm that is your fundamental algorithm for analyzing your data. Right. Yeah, that's super interesting. So let, let me maybe, well, I, I don't want to uh, dictate the agenda to you, but let me just suggest something that we should, that we could explore uh, either now or later, which yeah. is if we look at one source of problems at universities being this analysis versus, versus synthesis divide and this problem with being about finding experts in narrow subjects and uh, the difficulty of creating a place where generalists and people who are good at synthesis can thrive. Uh, maybe it's, you know, we can think about what kinds of organizations or institutions could be the reverse, right? What kind of organization or institution could be really good cultivating people who are I mean, I'm happy to use the word generalist, but many people react badly to that. Many people hear generalist and they feel like, oh, this is like a person who doesn't really know anything, right? And that's, that's not how I mean it. Um, oh, I so what I mean when I say generalist is that, you know, if you are a generalist programmer, I expect that for 80 plus percent of programming problems, if I come to you and ask you, hey, how do you solve this? You have more or less a solution, right? It doesn't mean that that solution, yeah. it doesn't mean that you have an answer literally to every problem. But for most problems, if I come to you, you should have a solution. It should be a reasonable solution. That's, that's what I mean by a generalist. Uh, and that's actually surprisingly hard to find. Uh, most people, like, if you really dig into the skill set of people in the wild, a surprising and disappointing number of them are really just bad specialists. So when I, when I say this word generalist, I mean it in actually in a, in a positive sense, even though many people, they hear generalist and they, and they have this connotation of like, oh, okay, you're not actually good at anything. Uh, and that, that is not what I mean. Right. I see. Yeah. Games programming is actually a great crucible for this because, as you said, just to get a trivial game actually functioning, you have to do so many different things, right? You have to get, you have right. to like connect to the GPU. You need to get shaders. You need to get geometry into the GPU. Even if you're doing a 2D game, you need to figure out some text rendering. You need to have an asset, some kind of asset pipeline option, even if it's a trivial one, right? Like maybe you just load up all the assets statically when you when you boot and you store them in memory like right. but but even that like you have to engage with so many different concerns that don't directly have anything to do with each other but if they are not jointly designed so that they work together then you will not succeed making anything right and so many so many people burn right. out of making games because they start out with you know they, they just burn out on the 15 different things that you have to get more or less right before you have any kind of game at all yeah, that makes sense. I see myself. I don't want to say that I'm I'm the uh, the ideal generalist or anything, but I have noticed myself less of. I, I tend more towards wanting to explore entire solutions of problems, and I think it's largely because I just started by working on games, so I never tried to like do something very specific and do it the best possible way, other than the entire thing. If that right. makes sense, I'm trying to like piece together in my head what kind of organizational structure would actually lead to people who happen to be very good at that. And I mean, to some degree, I think it's, there's a proto version of that, I guess, in the network, because there are so many people working on games and sort of having to deal with all these problems. And they're all lone wolf programmers, or most of them are, which means they're having to deal with a lot of these problems themselves. Right. Uh, that is a, the, the overlap with lone wolves is interesting. And there's a, I don't actually know the answer to this question, but one could ask, are you a generalist? Because like, were you the lone wolf first? And then you were forced to be a generalist because you don't have any, any teammates. <laughs> or is it that because you are skilled in many ways, you were able to be a lone wolf and you didn't need to have the teammates, right? There are definitely many things where you can just move so much faster on new ideas if you're by yourself, or or at least if you have the authority to move by yourself. Even yeah. even on a team of two, 
you wake up one morning, you have some idea, oh, I'm going to try this new thing about, wouldn't it be cool if the background had this funny shader effect, right? And you just go and do it. Yep. Whereas if you have to get other people to buy in, even if they're people who agree with you most of the time, they won't agree with you all of the time. And there's still the drag of, okay, well, I'm not going to start until I get the other person to at least discuss it. And then that person will probably have some kind of opinion. I may not care what their opinion is, but I have to, for like, to maintain the social relationship, I have to spend some energy taking their idea seriously. Right. And you know, I, I don't mean this. I don't mean this as an indictment of working on teams. I've worked on many teams very happily. Uh, but there's just a huge difference between being able to just move when you're ready to move. Because for, for me, I'm, I'm a very, you know, I, I, I tend to make progress in bursts, not in, I, you know, I can do some things in a slow and steady way, but I, most of the progress I make is, you know, one, one morning I'm just feeling it and I crank something out in three hours. Yeah. And I've, you know, it's something I've been thinking about for two weeks, but then something, you know, uh, reaches a boiling point in my head and I'm just ready to go and do it. And it's done in three hours and that's it. And if that, if that yeah. moment of burst energy or inspiration is lost for me, then a large portion of my productivity is lost. Other people are not like that, but that's definitely how my productivity tends to happen. Yeah, I, I think I'm similar in that way. At some point, I was looking at my Git commit history on on GitHub for for a few different projects, and it was pretty interesting to see like the different patterns of how often people are actually committing code. So for some people, it's like this kind of, it's still like sort of a wave, like there's cycles of activity and inactivity. And then mine in particular was like giant spike. And then like I crashed down for a while where I'm like, I don't know, I don't really know what to do. And I just kind of let it sit in my head. And then at some point it boils up and produces another huge spike on the graph, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. And I I have found that that work pattern also seems to line up with working on multidimensional problems or you know, working on synthetic hmm. problems. Okay. Uh, sorry, synthetic in the sense of being synthesis, not in the sense of being made up problems. Right. So an organizational structure or an, you know, a theoretical institution or a community like Handmade Network, in order to produce, produce people who sort of fall into that path if they want to, obviously, if, they, if they're already on that path. And if you're trying to create an institution or, or place for those people to have structures to support them or, you know, have resources or people to, to help them. I mean, in one sense, you need the community. I guess in the other sense, you need some form of direction towards people making certain certain styles of, of, of things, I would, I would imagine. And I think the handmade community sort of already does this sort of informally where it's it's entwined with games, among other things, but games pretty pretty tightly. So I think a lot of people come into the network expecting to work on games, expecting to think about game-related problems. So you sort of naturally get a lot of people doing that. I'm curious about your thoughts on a more refined structure, if there is one, that would that would promote that style of work or that style of exposure to certain projects or that style of experience. Well, I have a thought running around in my head, but I don't know if it's a good one. So I, I'm going to share it with you with the provisors. I don't know if it's okay. Good. In the kind of business and finance world, the career path that is generally seen as as the path for people who are generalists in the sense that I described, right? People who can slot into a different thing every day and be pretty good at all of them. That mm-hmm. path is at least in the, the business and finance world, is management consulting. And the the expectations okay. there are that the way that management consulting firms work is that, you know, let's say you are Sony and you have you perceive you have some problem in producing certain kinds of supplies that are necessary for your factories to build your PlayStations, right? A representative kind of problem that 
a company like Sony might bring to a management consultancy like McKinsey. Then what okay. McKinsey does is they say, okay, we're going to send you a team of five people. They're going to be on site. They're going to be working with you every day. Their job is to discover all your requirements and figure out, okay, where, where do people believe that the problems are? And then generate some set of options for, uh, for solutions, right? So that, that's roughly how the, these, these companies work. Hmm. And, uh, probably I imagine that, uh, at least some people in the audience are already, already suspicious. I, I, the reason I say that this, I don't know if this is a good idea is that management <laughs> consulting, let, let's just say it has a controversial reputation in terms of whether or not the typical management consultant is actually adding value. But the, okay. the reason I bring I it up is because they definitely have the reputation of being the kind of people you bring in who have this kind of cross-training generalist skill. Okay. And it's, it's a, yeah. it's a different kind of career path. You know, if, if you have friends in you know, kind of the business and economics and finance world, you know, some of them are going to be going down kind of conventional finance paths. Like they're going to become Wall Street analysts or traders or, uh, they're going to work on the, on the deal side of banking, that that's one class of thing that people do, and then a, a different class of people end up in things like management consulting. And it's definitely the perception that the people who end up in management consulting are m- this more kind of cross-trained, good at many things, not great in any, any one particular thing kind of personalities. So now I'm I'm trying to wonder whether or not there are similar kinds of either businesses or institutions in, let's say, computing or programming, where there are people who hmm. have that kind of reputation of you, know, you go and hire them and they know they tend to have a, a pretty good solution to more or less every kind of problem. I, I can't think of anything that has that kind of reputation in programming, but maybe you do. I don't know. Yeah. When I think of the first thought that comes to mind has less to do with generalist consultants and more so with like specialists, like a lot of game studios were, will outsource certain special effects or like rendering needs, for example, yeah, so that's to, a, that's a, to a, teams a terminology of overlap that that is unfortunate for this discussion, but it's not really the same kind of thing at all. Uh, the the thing like management okay. consulting, you should interpret it as a phrase that means a particular thing. It's not like they happen to be consultants and they happen to work in energy. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. I know there are like people who are hired by various studios to do certain things. I don't know of any that happen to be, I mean, it's kind of difficult because in order to really do a good job at being a generalist programmer, I would think you'd have to get, to be fair, I don't know how long these management consultant people work alongside the people that hire them. Uh, But in the case of, okay, okay. Yeah. Because I would imagine that in order for it to be effective in programming, you'd have to be sort of the people who are doing the architecture style programming or software work. And that's really difficult to shoehorn onto an existing software solution. And it's also difficult to do it in a maybe a cost-efficient period of time. On the flip side, there's an educational institution idea that might work there, which is people are trying to do certain things because they're trying to learn or they're trying to sell like an indie game or something like a much smaller scale project that hasn't had a ton of time invested in it already. And if that's the structure that you're working with, working with, I could see that as the place where a generalist programmer could actually be more productive. And in, in a sense, that's a little bit what we do on the Handmade Network because people will come to us with all kinds of programming questions, including architectural ones, on projects that have been alive for less than a week. And that's sort of right when you need an architectural-style programmer to come in and start doing something. Yeah, so that, that actually hmm. triggered two things that I just remembered that, uh, that actually seem pretty relevant. So one is okay. when I was at Caltech, there was this thing called the DARPA Grand Challenge. You may have heard of it. It was a uh, a federal prize for 
developing an early, early self-driving car. The, the idea was that students would build from nothing, right? A self-driving car that yeah. would then compete in various kinds of events that, you know, would have to drive around an obstacle course and then maybe get to some waypoints and whatever, right? My, my thesis advisor oversaw the DARPA Grand Challenge efforts at Caltech, and I, I was involved in some aspects of that. Uh, the students mm-hmm. who did that definitely got cross-functional experience because you just had to, right? Like you show up at the lab and the first question, you know, people ask questions like, okay, well, I guess we have to buy a car chassis to build everything on top of. What car could we buy? <laughs> right. Uh, and then, okay. We're going to have to put some computers in it. How many computers do you think we can jam in this car? Right. You know, from there, you get down to questions like, okay, we have to set up a network because it's not going to be one central computer inside the truck. It's going to be many computers inside the truck talking together on a network and then trying to figure out, okay, we have to come up with some kind of networking protocol. Should we use any of the established ones? Is TCP a good fit? Turned out TCP was not a good fit. Big surprise. So they, you know, they came up with this local area network protocol that they wrote that was custom. What kinds of sensors should we put on this thing? So uh, nowadays, very well established what sensors go on on the self-driving car. At the time, it was not, right? So, yeah. you know, what kind of sensors should we put on this thing? Can we use a radar? I don't know. Do we know anyone who knows how to use a radar? Uh, do, we know, do we know anyone who can program a radar? Uh, so I, I helped a little bit because part of my research was on algorithms for processing sensor data. But those students got a, a really good cross-functional education in in the act of doing something that was synthesis, right? That the challenge was build a car that attempts to compete at this competition, right? And if you win, you get a million dollars or whatever it was. Yeah. And that was actually a really good educational experience. And uh, I wish that they could do more of it, but it, I mean, it completely sapped my advisor's schedule. He, he was spending more and more time supervising that because it, you know, it was a team of 30-ish people or something. I see. So that was one, yeah. one thing that I remembered. I think more things like that would be great. And then I thought, you know, actually, I know a place that does more things like that. The place that does things like that huh. is a place called Olin College of Engineering. And I think they're in Massachusetts. Uh, they have a very unusual educational model. And their model is hmm. the entire education is project-based. So if you're a mechanical engineer, each year you are working with other mechanical engineers to build a car. If you're a civil engineer, each year you're working on building, I guess, a bridge or a small structure. I don't, I don't know exactly what it is. Electrical engineers build like power circuits or, you know, set up like solar installations. So everything there is project based. There's no like, here are the courses you take, right? It's okay. You're in the mechanical engineering program. You're building a car. That's what you're doing for the next four years. Now that's supplemented by the opportunity to learn all the theoretical stuff. Because at some point, if you're a mechanical engineer, you're going to want to figure out okay, I guess I need to put a suspension on this car. How do I think about putting a suspension on a car, right? Um, and it turns, out that, it turns out that there is right. science that lets you answer questions about putting a suspension on a car in a quantitative way. And there are software tools that let you simulate different kinds of suspensions. And so that that naturally leads you to learning about things like differential equations because the differential equation is the tool that you need to understand the suspension of the car and to figure out, okay, if it's a drive, you know, the mass is ballpark such and such, if it's driving at, let's say, 30 miles an hour and it goes over a bump of a height of whatever, let's say five inches, uh, let's calculate ballpark how much that's going to cause the chair in the driver's seat to bounce, right? Uh, so that, that's the kind of calculation that you would do in building such a car. I, I have a friend who was a professor there. I don't know if she's there anymore. It occurred to me that this is actually a really good example of trying to do the reverse of, of this analysis focus, right? Because the entire thing is synthesis. I don't know, even if they have a computer science degree, and if you do have a computer science degree, I don't know what you do. 
Maybe you built an operating system or, or something. I don't know. I, after this, I'm going to go and look it up and see what see what people are doing at Olin these days because I haven't checked in on them in 10 years or something. But that's a university that is trying to do something new. And it is, I mean, it, it was just through, through the process of this conversation that I realized how they fit into this framework, that they are trying to give students this kind of synthetic experience that lets them learn everything in context, right? That you learn about differential equations because you need to install shocks on your car. And you learn about circuit laws because you are building a power circuit for a solar panel, right? And if you don't know the circuit, you know, if you don't know the circuit laws, you can't build that circuit. That's really interesting. It also makes it very clear whether a student properly succeeds or not, not necessarily restricted to programming, uh, although certainly applies in programming, is that a lot of people can go through the degree. Uh, the, The example that always comes to my head is I was taking a data science class, like an, you know, super basic intro to data science class in university. And I sat next to somebody who was graduating. I did a summer semester with a couple classes just to catch up on credits. And I was sitting next to a senior uh, who's graduating after he passed that class. And we, you know, we had to do some super basic Python programming. He, uh, he was asking me about how to do Python and I had never done Python in my life. And uh, he was like, yeah, I have, I have no idea how to program <laughs> at all. I was pretty yeah. dumbfounded at that. I don't know. I mean, it seems that it, it'd be much easier to evaluate whether a student actually did did a good job and if the university did a good job in presenting them with the tools they needed, if there's actually a concrete thing yeah. at the end. Uh, so this brings up something where it's worth briefly talking about the responsibility that students have for the bad situation we're in right now. And I, I understand yeah. that this may feel like like blaming the victim. I, I don't I don't mean it that way, right? But there, <laughs> there are definitely things that students do that make the situation worse. And if they stop doing it, at yeah. least part of the problem could be alleviated. One problem is that because of the story that students have been told about, hey, if you go to university and you tick the box for, I'm going to be a computer scientist or I'm going to be a data scientist, then at the end of four years, you will be a computer scientist or a data scientist. And that then translates, that then <laughs> translates into you will get a job at such and such company, right? And then people do that, many of them not actually caring about the subject, right? And I don't mean it, I don't mean about it, I don't mean it in like a, you know, deep romantic sense, right? Like I, I understand that most people are not going to be sitting around thinking about how cool some theorem from computer science theory is, right? But I just think the more basic thing of, hey, look, if you, if you signed up for a data science degree, like maybe you should know how to use a programming language because what, otherwise, what are you doing? Right? What are you doing? Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and so the university also has to design around these people. Uh, you basically can't fail many students these days because, yep. you know, for, I mean, boy, is, boy, is this another subject of discussion? It has become so expensive that, I mean, it would really be immoral to fail a student out of university these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not yeah. going to touch the cost subject. That would take, take us far afield. But because you can't fail them, the university has to do something with these people. It's a non-trivial fraction of people who are like, well, I wanted to be a data scientist because I heard that that was the thing that was popular right now. And that was the thing that was going to give me a good job. Ultimately, you know, if you step, if you take one step past the student, the blame is not with them. But it, in the moment, yeah. in the moment, they are the nexus of the bad behavior. Like if they just said, hey, I signed up for this thing, maybe other people coaxed me into signing up for this thing. But I signed up for this thing. I'm supposedly becoming a data scientist. Let me like be able to perform the bare minimum task of writing a Python script to analyze some data. Yeah, I've I've that yeah, we didn't talk about that earlier, but that's another part of my university education that I can't actually aim at universities <laughs> or a criticism of my university education that I can't 
aim at universities, which is that there seems to be a broad, it's a certain cultural spirit, to use that word liberally, uh, within the body of students, which is expectation of passing a class yep. without investing uh, the, the effort required to, to actually learn the subject. I mean, people look at pass-fail rates for classes, for example. Uh, one of the best classes I had in university was uh, a discrete math class. And I think the class started with like 48 people at the beginning of the semester. And it ended with, um, I don't remember what it was, but I, I think it was something like 75% of the students dropped out. So like 13 yep. people 13 people were left at the end. You know, people will look at stuff like that. And, you know, I, I, I can't make the case on the podcast because it would require like, you know, criticizing people. And th- that's not what I'm trying to do. But I can make a good case that it was not the teacher's yep. fault, <laughs> basically. And I think... I don't know if that's like a broader cultural problem. Like it seems that a lot of people have been brought up to be complacent almost. Yeah. I don't know. Obviously that's beyond the scope of, of talking about education specifically. Well, I, but th- I, I think I it mean, ties into the one and the older view of universities as being repositories of knowledge versus universities as human mm-hmm. capital factors. So if you see the university as the repository of knowledge, yeah. then the professor says, well, you're not good enough to learn this and participate in carrying this knowledge forward in time. So sorry, but bye. Like no, no yeah. hard feelings, but we're here to, to propagate this knowledge through time so that society can continue to benefit from it. You're just not the yeah. person to do that. And that's okay. We don't all have to be that person, right? So that's one. Right. The other view is the human capital factory, which is, you know, okay, you came here, you gave us a lot of money and <laughs> While it wasn't anywhere in the contract, it was very heavily implied that we were going to turn you into whatever it says on the piece of paper. Yeah. <laughs> and in that framework, I totally understand why a student would say, hey, like, I, you have my money. I signed up for this personal transformation. It's your job to apply that transformation to me, right? Because that's what you do. You're, you're in the human transforming business. Right. It's a little bit depressing that within that framework, there seems to be a lack of, uh, I guess, a personal personal motivation to transform yourself too. I, I think this wasn't something I always consciously understood, but I think that I've always wanted universities to be a place where I can go and uh, use the resources that they provide to uh, motivate myself and individually propel myself to to ultimately like self empowerment effectively. And I realize that's not in line with the with the actual original view of universities because. Like you said, it's more of a repository of knowledge than an individual empowerment sort of resource toolkit, I guess. But I always get this feeling that there's a lack of that within the within student bodies. And I think that some students take advantage of the tendency of administrators to assume good faith on the student part yeah. <laughs> or on the student's part. Uh, administration is, um, again, that's, I could spend hours going into pathologies that have come with the rise of the administrator arm of universities, but let, let me not open that can of worms. It's a big can of worms. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that you are right. That this view of, hey, I'm a customer. You promised to turn me into whatever. That is something that is that is happening with like the wink and the nudge of the administrators, much more so than the professors. Uh, the right. professors, really most of them, as I said, they are some level of true believer. Right? They, they do genuinely love the yeah. thing. They generally love the mathematics or the art or the history or whatever. And really it pains them. I, I'm not, I, I'm not exaggerating. It pains them to have somebody in their class who just doesn't care, right? Like if you're someone who spent your life studying, yeah. I don't know, medieval history and someone's like, you know, I just want to get a passing grade because I need to get this history degree so that I can go to law school, right? From the perspective of the, so I, I understand 
why that's a reasonable position for the student. But just pause for a moment and think about how the professor is thinking about that, right? That you're telling me, okay, I'm here multiple times a week sharing with you this passion that I have that I spent 30 years developing. And what you're telling right. me is you don't care about it except as formless content to dump into your degree bucket, right? And then you're going to pick up your degree bucket yeah. and carry it to law school or whatever. You can imagine how, how professors who really most of them are, you know, for, for all of their, their, their flaws are true believers. Like they genuinely love what they're doing and they wish other people loved it and they wish they could share it. It's just yeah. depressing to be in a room with mostly people who don't care and some people who are just outright dismissive of like, I, you know, I'm just here for the grade, man. Yeah, it's, it seems like there's two sides to the relationship, the professors and the students, and they both have far more than two, that- right? The, um, so it's, there's a everything connected to everything else network of professors and students and administrators and funding bodies and alumni and employers. Uh, like yeah. every, everyone here is affecting everybody else. But yes, like in the moment to moment of the classroom, it, certainly you're right that, that it's, the, it's those two. And I, I guess every single party in that, in that complicated, like spider web graph is expecting different things out of the relationship. Yeah. I mean, one reason why I think handmade network work, works really well and probably that, I don't know what, what was the name of the, or the college that you o- mentioned? Olin, Olin, Olin College. O-L-I-N. Okay. Olin. I would assume there too, it's the same story where the professors probably, the reason why they're working there is probably because they care about that style of projects. As you say, synthesis, that's probably a passion of theirs. And if the students are attending that specific college, they probably think the same thing. And And I'm sure it works a lot uh, better. I can imagine how gratifying it would be to be a professor and have students who come in year one and four years later, they've built a car. Right. And they start, you know, they were just like yeah. high school kids. And four years later, they have built a car under your supervision. Yeah. I feel like that, that must be very gratifying. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting because my experience in high school is pretty similar. I participated in a organization called TSA, not the <laughs> airport. That's the joke that everybody always makes, not the transportation security agency, but it's a technology student association. I, I participated in like a pretty wide breadth of events, but the one that I always focused on the one that was by far the thing that I spent the most time on was video game design. And despite the word design, it was really about the entire process, including, you know, building the software, you know, many students used engines, but that I used that opportunity to really grow as like, I'm building a game and I'm going to send it at the end of the year. And I think that was by far the most important educational experience that I had in high school. And if were it not for Handmade Hero, and working at actual places, maybe including college too. Although that's the math in college was pretty useful, so it's hard, it's hard to say for sure. But doing that throughout, it was actually middle and high school. That was by far the that was such a good experience uh, relative to to the traditional high school education. I know you have that's another can of worms. The the whole high school picture, yeah, or I guess public education picture. But uh, no, I mean. Even- um, most private schools are not immune to the kinds of problems that most public schools have. I mean, they also have different problems, but they are not immune. Yeah. What you mentioned, or what you were talking about just now, got me to thinking about something that I think we definitely should discuss, which is the role of apprentice-style learning. So, you know, apprentice-style learning is there is a an expert, right? And then there is a person who's, who knows nothing, right? And the person who knows nothing just follows the expert around. The expert does all the expert stuff. And then anytime there's grunt work, the expert says, oh, can you go do the grunt work, right? Like it starts with, you know, oh, take yeah. out the garbage, oh, you know, water the plants. 
And then eventually it's like, oh, well, I guess you can probably swing the hammer today. Just be careful and, you know, don't, don't hurt yourself. And that, that um, <laughs> expands up into the apprentice uh, eventually being on a path to becoming an expert themselves. So that's, that's apprentice. Very, very rare in the modern world. But I think what Handmade Hero has done, and I really think it's hard to overstate the impact that Casey has had through Handmade Hero. He has done sort of a version of scalable apprenticeship, or at least one side of that relationship, right? So he's providing the expert side mm-hmm. of that relationship because you just go, you know, and you can go however many, however many times a week. Is it like once a week, twice a week these days? I, I haven't followed in a while. I think it's once uh, since he's working on Starcode Galaxy. Um, But you can go and watch an actual expert do actual expert stuff and talk you through what they're doing. And now you don't have the the traditional apprenticeship model where you're also doing grunt work for that person. But if you're following along, you basically are. It allows you to to kind of do your own self-motivated apprenticeship under Casey. He shows you, okay, I did all this stuff. I, I did all this stuff in this episode. And then you go and type in the same thing. And if you get a slightly different result, you know that something is wrong because you just watched on the video and you saw what result you got. It, it has been really impressive to me seeing how much productivity has been, has blossomed under the inspiration from Handmade Hero. Yeah. And, you know, really at a, not, not to minimize what he's doing with Handmade Hero, but the, I think that the, the network effects have been a much, much more powerful legacy than just the, the part that he's doing with Handmade Hero. I mean, that obviously that's just my opinion. Casey, I'm sure, has his own opinions on uh, what is or is not the most uh, uh, most impactful thing. Um, but if you just look at all of the yeah. really interesting projects that have spun out of Handmade Network and all of the interesting things that have spun out of, you know, you know, one example is uh, Gingerbill's programming language, Odin, which is now being used. You know, right. uh, when did he start? Four years ago? And now is being used professionally in like high-end visual effects companies. That, that happens yes. downstream of... Casey doing this kind of half of the apprenticeship model through his YouTube videos. And, you know, you, you could pick like, I'm sure you could pick, you know, five or 10 more things. Uh, and also just to make sure that uh, all the people who, who were part of this chain uh, get the credit they deserve. Abner, of course, <laughs> was a founder of Handmade Network and in, in some ways the, the pivotal link in linking up what Casey was doing with the broader community of people who shared those values and shared that curiosity, but maybe were not specifically focused on Handmade Hero, the game project. Abner yeah. and uh, Jeroen and uh, and Andrew Niblo and uh, you know all all the people who were responsible for that, and then you, of course, and you know Ben and and the rest of the of the current administration of Handmade Network. I think all of you deserve a lot of respect and thanks for mediating this for so many people. There are many things that would not be here if not for what Casey did with Handmade Hero and what Abner and his crew and you and Ben and your crew have done with Handmade Network. And I, I think that is a, a real success in some kind of alternative to the university system. Uh, and you know, it doesn't answer all the questions, It doesn't, but it answers some of them. Um, and it, and it, it definitely proves that, that things with real-world impact can happen under this alternative kind of model. Well, thanks. Thanks for including me in there. I, I, what's really interesting is that Casey also produced, it wasn't even just him doing the one-sided apprenticeship model. I mean, there's lots of people streaming nowadays. Not all of them are experts, but what's really interesting about that is it's, it's a form of peer to peer education that I never really experienced in university. This is Um, something that that links back up to uh, what's going on at Olin, because from what I understand anyway, most of the early year students are learning the theory, at least initially, from the more advanced students, right? So, you know, a senior who has already read 
the books about differential equations and how to apply that to designing a shock system for a car, that person is helping the junior people get through that material as well, because the senior is motivated for those younger people to be useful because those those younger people are working on the same car, right? So there's an incentive system there where because you're all working together on this joint synthesis project, the more senior people want you to be useful. So they'll say, hey, I already read the book about differential equations. Let me tell you, here's the part you need, here's the part you need, here's the part you need. Here are the calculations we did for this particular shock system. Here are the MATLAB simulation scripts that we used. Now go, now go improve this piece of it. Yeah. So one of the metrics that people bring up when it comes to universities is is a uh, student to faculty ratio. And it's a little bit weird because within the model of universities and for that matter, public education or basically private schools too, because they, from what I can tell, they largely follow uh, the same model, at least on the whole. I'm sure there's experimental things in some places. But what's really interesting about it is that it comes from a model of constructing a dichotomy between teachers and students as two separate groups. But what's really interesting about the, you know, what you just described at Olin with the seniors teaching, you know, the freshmen to help them be useful to to the project, and both of them are incentivized to do that. If you were to consider that senior as a quote unquote faculty, not literally a faculty, but as a teacher, then the spectrum of expertise, right? It's someone who a senior knows a lot more than a first-year student and a lot less than a professor. But for the purposes of the first-year student becoming productive, the senior could be perfectly good, especially if, if the incentive structures are right. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, if you have you have a senior or many, many seniors and your peers all serving as possible teachers or sources of teaching for you who are, you know, entering into this knowing nothing, like a freshman at Olin or something uh, equivalent, I mean, effectively, the the student to teacher ratio is is absurdly small. I mean, you have so many so many educational tools yeah. available to you, a densely connected network of teaching links. You know that can even happen. Yeah. I mean, one good example with handmade network is you know. So I, I often hang out in the programming help channel and just try to help people with random stuff that has nothing to do with my expertise, right? Like I don't think anyone has ever asked me a machine learning or AI question. In I got one. I think I got one. But yeah, I hang out helping people. Uh, where I can. And, yeah. uh, you know, other people hang out helping where they can. And often I learn interesting things about stuff that I didn't know anything about from, you know, watching, for example, Martin's work with, you know, work with people. And I just said, oh, wow, you know, I learned yeah. something, right? So I wasn't, I didn't come here expecting to learn something, but here we have someone who's an expert in, I mean, how many things is Martin's an expert in? I don't know. <laughs> all, I, all of them. All, I don't know. All of the point. things, yes. <laughs> you know, so he, you have him sharing his expertise with some some junior person trying to solve some problem that has nothing to do with me, right? I don't I don't actually care about the problem. Just by being there, uh, I osmotically gain from that interaction without even being a participant, right? Because I, you know I went, oh hey, there's right. there's actually this really useful API function that I had I had no knowledge about, and I wouldn't have even thought to ask anybody about it. But it's cool that I now know this because I oversaw this ad hoc teaching relationship that happened uh, between two people that were not me. Yeah. What's also interesting is that there's no that so the incentive structure within Olin is not present there. If if you're helping somebody work on their little game in programming help, for example, you don't really win anything. Maybe I shouldn't tell you this because you're you're nice to have around in the programming help channel. <laughs> but uh, you know you don't you don't actually get anything from that person completing your game other than oh you help them out. It's a good feeling. But it's not like I mean maybe that maybe the answer is actually just to to value well, I mean, that I, more. Cer- I mean I certainly value and it, it and it's. 
you know, it, yeah. I mean, it is something that is a, it has been a value in my family for generations. I, right. I you know, I, I don't want to talk this up too much, but I, I really do think that there is more than just pragmatic value in educating people. Uh, I, I think it's, it's just, it's fun yeah. watching somebody grow from not knowing how to do anything to knowing how to do a little bit to doing something that you never, never thought that they would do. Right. Yep. And so it, there is, uh, I mean, I, you know, I don't get any tangible real world value out of it. Uh, but I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. And I also, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm doing something, uh, I'm doing something productive that, that helps other people. And so that, that makes it feel worthwhile to me as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's basically the answer that has to be settled on because I, every time I try to like dig into that and analyze that sort of feeling a little bit more, it always ends up being reduced to like super materialistic or almost like psychopathic <laughs> justifications. Like I'm like, I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, oh yeah, I'll help this person. And then they'll go make good software that I can use later. And it's like, oh, so is it just about me? Like yeah, to just it, do something because you think it's a good thing to do. Right. right. Well, um, it, I guess it's been a little while. So uh, I think that's a really good note to end yeah. on. Want to thank you again so much, Dimitri. It's been a really interesting conversation. I really yeah, liked it. I'm very happy. Um, how hopefully, you, hopefully we'll see you again soon. And thanks everybody for tuning in and talk to everybody uh, later. Bye bye. All right. See you later. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Handmade Network podcast. You can join us in making software by hand by going to handmade.network. You can also email in questions or topics for the podcast to podcast at handmade.network. Hope to see you next time.